Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Each week this year, we will hear a Dvar Torah on the weekly Parsha from our Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Aviva Richmond. Let's listen. This is Aviva Richmond from Hadar sharing thoughts on Parsha Huka. Critique and Creativity In Parshat Chukat, the people complain again about their food in the wilderness. But this complaint is different from earlier complaints. They don't remember the food in Egypt with nostalgia, nor do they crave a particular item. They are disgusted with manna. The people grew restive on the journey, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why did you make us leave Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread and no water, and we have come to loathe this miserable food. This similar but different complaint comes from the generation that has grown up on manna. They have known little else for their whole lives, and they are tired of eating this food. According to Rashi, they are complaining about the ways in which manna is not like real food, because it creates no waste. The food just absorbs into their limbs. It enters, but nothing comes out. It seems like it would be magical to eat this kind of food where your body uses everything you eat and there is no waste. The Talmud describes this as an angel-like state in Tractate Yoma. But the people want to be like regular mortals. They want to eat and excrete. They cannot appreciate this special state. Its abnormality makes them nervous. They fear the food will swell in their bodies and make them ill. Chizkuni, a different commentator, offers a different reading of this complaint with two comments that are both less focused on mortal versus angel and more focused on a desire for independence. All this time, we have been expecting to enter the land, and we are craving to eat some of its produce. In this first comment, he suggests that what they want is real bread that comes from wheat that they themselves will harvest from the land. This is the generation that has been wandering in the desert their whole lives. The food may be fine, but they are tired of being fed. They are straining with eagerness to enter the land and grow their own food. In this vein, we might reread Rashi. Perhaps the people's concern isn't about being abnormal by making no waste. The concern is that they don't just want to absorb machnis. They also want to produce motzi. The generation of slaves who left Egypt complained based on a mindset of food insecurity. This generation yearns to grow up and become independent, not to be cared for as babies their whole lives. Chizkuni's second comment offers a different version of this picture. They complain because the manna does not give them strength. Perhaps the manna meets their basic nutritional needs, but it fails to sustain human power and agency. In response to these complaints about the manna, God sends fiery serpents that bite the people, and many of them die. To heal, God tells Moshe to make a copper snake for them to look at and live. On its face, this seems at odds with the Torah, like a form of idol worship. Does the snake really have the power to heal? The rabbinic picture responds to this theological problem. The Mishnah relates that the snake itself is not what healed the people. But by looking at the snake, they looked towards God, and God is the one who healed them. The point of the copper snake was to direct their eyes and hearts towards heaven, to, quote, bind their hearts to God, instilling a sense of dependence. 
Perhaps this was meant to drill down on what the people wanted to deny, to remind them that they are indeed dependent on God. One day they will have to grow their own food in their own land, but they should not have the illusion that even that will mean that they are independent. As humans, we are never fully in control. The manna is just a concrete manifestation of their dependence, meant to instill an ethos for a lifetime. One tradition about the copper snake, however, goes in a different direction that does stress the human ability to produce and not just absorb, to exercise creativity and independence, not just deferentially take and preserve what we are given in a mode of dependence. After the sage, known as Rabbi, gives a particularly lenient ruling in Tractate Choline, his colleagues attack him. They criticize him for being too independent-minded. If your ancestors were strict, he is asked, how can you be lenient? The idea seems to be that the intellectual project of Torah is about preserving what came before us. It is about absorbing, not about creating something new. In response to this critique, Rabbi comments on a mention of the copper snake in the Book of Kings. In the times of King Chizkiah, the snake was worshipped as idolatry, and he crushed it up so it would no longer lead people astray. Why, Rabbi asks, had Chizkiah's predecessors not taken care of this object of idolatry, since they destroyed all of the other idolatry in the land? He concludes, his ancestors left room for him to achieve prominence, and so too, my ancestors left room for me to achieve prominence. Afani. The legacy that Chizkiah absorbed was unfinished. There was still more for him to do. His going ahead and getting rid of what he perceived to be an idolatrous object that his ancestors had left behind should not be viewed as a departure from their legacy. Rather, he absorbed what he could from them, and then he took it further. However, this is not really a satisfying proof text for the idea that someone can roll differently from their ancestors, it just shows that one can continue to expand upon it. They uprooted idolatry, and he continued to uproot more. Rabbi, in contrast, rules leniently against the stringencies in the inherited tradition. Yet the Talmud still links Rabbi's innovative ruling to this story about the snake to explain Rabbi's departure from earlier traditions. What is fascinating, then, is the way that this tradition about Chizkiah crushing the snake ends up being deployed. It is not only about continuing the unfinished work of ancestors, and certainly not about doubling down and expanding inherited stringencies. The copper snake becomes a paradigm for later generations to arrive at independent conclusions. Once one has absorbed a rich inheritance of Torah, the copper snake teaches that one can, perhaps must, also produce. We have seen that this generation in the desert complains about food out of a concern for growth in their own agency and independence. At first reading, we see them punished for this and seemingly put in their place by being reminded of their subservience to God, looking up towards heaven when they gaze at the copper snake. But actually, this is the generation that will enter the land, and it is important to have a desire for independence. They should want to grow in their ability to produce, not just absorb. In the Talmud, the copper snake comes to represent the importance of independence and creativity in development of the tradition, and to consciously leave room for the next generation to do their own digging and their own work. Quote, my ancestors left me room to achieve prominence. When we trace the longer arc of the story of the copper snake, 
we see validation of the people's desire to create and produce. May we all merit to absorb what we need to absorb and to create all that we can create. And most importantly, that we pave the way for the next generation to create what they need to create. Shabbat Shalom. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.